Investors Chronicle. Companies and Markets podcast, Thursday the 16th of February 2023. Dan Jones off sick today, uh, so hosting Alex Newman. He's been drafted in uh, late. The coup starts now. You're right, Alex? It's not It's not a coup. I mean, I don't, I've not poisoned Dan or anything. I think, <laughs> it's just, I think he's just off. Um, yeah, I'm all, I'm all good, thanks. I think he had the deli belly, didn't he, or something? So he's, uh, uh... He did go to Rye last weekend. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Are they somehow linked to Delhi? Is that somehow, li- yeah. Well, yes. Know. Rye, one of the uh, the Sank ports. Well, thank you for that, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd actually like to point out to our listeners. Also, the I'm, former home of Spike Milligan. <laughs> I am. Um, I'm only here in a supervisory capacity today. <laughs> Not even been introduced yet, Mark. Oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead, please, John. No, no. It's as as you will have heard. <laughs> Julian Hoffman and, and Mark Robinson are down the line, as as usual, and champing at the bit today. Uh, but before we let them loose, uh, I'm just going to do a quick roundup of, of the week's news as normal. So another week, another gas company pulling in bumper profits. This week, it's the turn of British gas owner Centrica, who pulled in a threefold rise in operating profit for 2022. The £3.3 billion figure was driven by North Sea gas production, nuclear power and energy trading divisions and benefited from the volatile wholesale markets after Russia invaded Ukraine. The number of pubs and bars which went bankrupt last year was the highest in a decade. 512 companies went bust, an 83% increase. The sector struggled with elevated energy bills and higher labour, food and drink costs. Trading platform Plus 500's full-year profits grew to nearly half a billion dollars as it appeared to have retained pandemic period punters. Nearly 90% of the trading platform's sales on over-the-counter products came from those who had been with the company for more than a year. Car maker Ford is to cut 3,800 jobs across Europe, including 1,300 in the UK. The company said it was taking action to align roles quote, with a similar, more focused and increasingly electric product portfolio. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway cut back on its bet on TSMC. Having only held the position for one quarter, it acquired a $4.1 billion stake in the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturer, but it revealed in its recent results that it has now sold 87% of those shares. And finally, plane maker Airbus reported a flat operating profit of £4.7 million, despite increasing sales by 13%. Uh, its CEO blamed an, quote, adverse operating environment that prevented our supply chain from recovering at the pace we expected. Back to, uh, oh, I nearly said over to Dan. So muscle memory, but over to Alex. <laughs> Thanks, for the, John. For the rest of the show. Uh Lovely. Um, okay, so today we're going to talk about uh, banks, given it's uh, we're sort of in, in banking season results time. Uh, going to touch on the FTSE 100's new all-time high and uh, finish with a little bit of a chat about um, Glencore. Um, so just to start with the, the banks, and, and we're also going to talk about a brokerage whose, whose main source of profits sort of makes it look increasingly bank-like. Um, I mean, this should be a, a kind of boom time for credit providers you'd think given that interest rates are rising but I mean when it comes to results there's always a 
a surprise in store. Um, Julian, you, you covered the Barclays results this week. What were the, uh, what were the highlights, lowlights and uh, other assorted lights uh, in those results today? Yeah, thank you, Alex. Uh, Barclays Bank, our favourite piece of rhyming slang. Um, <laughs> the problem with Barclays is the the split between the investment bank and the deposit bank. So, it, and this has been a theme going back, I guess, as long as well, either of us have been writing about them. But uh, essentially, the last uh, quarter in particular was pretty bad for the investment bank. Nobody is doing any deals. Uh, you know, nobody's the trading side will didn't uh, sort of step up and save them either uh particularly fixed income for some reason they um the traders uh, missed all their targets for fixed income trading and the net result of that was the uh the market looked for any excuse to mark down the shares and uh, they reacted pretty badly so it was at one point it was down nine percent but i think they managed to pair back the the sort of daily loss to about seven and a half and it's curious really why everyone takes aim at this every every time there's a a result season um you know is barclays trying to be the all enveloping hybrid investment bank that uh, it wants to be or is it just an awkwardly put together high uh, you know company uh, where one bit is kind of underperforming at one time when the other one's when the other sector uh, when <laughs> sorry when one bit is uh, outperforming the other part of the bank seems to be underperforming it can never they never seem to be able to yoke it together and move in a step in one direction. And you know, it's a constant, it's been a constant debate about whether they shouldn't just break it up and or scale down the investment bank to just a, a simple sort of commercial lending operation. Um, but I mean, I think that the, the, but the main theme I got out of this is that I don't think people, and this is just my, opinion i would say but i'm not sure that people trust the current management or at least rate the current management to get them you know into a place that's more sustainable um i you know they lost a lot of <clears throat> goodwill over the fact that uh, one of their divisions in the states managed to over issue so many uh securities um and that resulted in a huge regulatory fine that's uh, another 1.8 billion of fine this year um in fact, it's it's a uh, someone totted up the number of fines they've had over the last decade or so, and it's it's something like eighteen billion pounds worth of regulatory fines that Barclays has paid out. I mean, you, if you can imagine that 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 money had gone to the shareholders. Yeah, so that is, I mean, that is the one constant, isn't it? I suppose that they're, uh, you know, whether the investment bank's going to be underperforming or the retail bank's going to be performing, they're still going to be shelling out um, for for fines or other sort of credit provisions or things that you know it's very hard for investors to see on the surface but are going to go wrong anyway it is it's true and it is a black when we've described it before as a black box operation and I, yeah i don't i think that that analogy is more true now than at any time in its its recent history um i mean the compensation of course is that they can get people on side by essentially paying out more capital um and improving the returns to, to shareholders but even in these results, uh, that sort of disappointed. I mean, everybody was pointing to the fact that the other similar kind of commercial hybrid banks in the in the Europe uh, are actually on a an upward swing when it comes to shareholder returns, and and Barclays seems to be kind of frozen on a on a level. 
Um, so they, they're not doing well comparatively to their competitors when it comes to that that, that measure. And uh, I don't know what the what the answer to this is whether they the, you know whether they'll improve. I mean, if they just improve what they're paying out, whether people will be more sanguine about the situation um, and, and improve, you know, and say, well, here's the compensation. You just have to put up with the quirks of this rather strange hybrid uh, institution. So uh, we also had results from Standard Chartered uh, today. I mean, they they don't have the sort of retail banking fallback uh, uh, that Barclays does, um, but momentum there is seems to be a lot stronger. They they announced a share buyback today, despite weaker than expected profits. What's the uh, what's the story and and bullishness behind Standard Charter shares at the moment? Yeah, the share price has done really well. As I'm sure you've noticed, it's uh, uh, yeah, it's good. It's, it's up a good sort of forty percent, I think, since the summer. Um, the story here really is that uh, the sh uh, interest rates are coming to Standard Charters rescue so their core uh, income from uh, much of their balance sheet is improving rapidly uh, they seem to be quite sensitive to emerging market rates which are which are now going up um, it's a, as you know it's um, it's an emerging it's primarily an emerging market bank uh, they weren't without <clears throat> issues it's fair to say they have quite a big presence in wealth management which seems to be the the cornerstone of a lot of their profit um and what was interesting from the results was that uh you know re investors react as investors will react and as, as soon as we had all that volatility last year everybody pulled their funds <laughs> and uh stuck it into i don't know u.s treasuries or bonds or something and that caused uh, like a 17% fall in, in revenue for that particular division. And when you consider that some, like more than half of their total profit comes from wealth management, that, that, that actually took a, piece, a decent hit. Uh, and they actually made up for it by the fact that uh, you know, interest margin is, is improving exponentially and, and other parts of the business delivered the income. So it's not it's sort of it was like six of it was like two steps forward one step back really i think that was my my take on them the results for them yeah. uh, and also the share back the share buyback was a little weaker than um the profits for the people have forecast but um yeah there had also been takeover rumors in the run-up to this so it, it, it's uh, you know it's, it might be an interesting takeover of someone but um We'll have to see whether that comes down the line or not. Yeah, so um, this this is the the takeover in question is first Abu Dhabi was reported um, about a month ago to have uh, have sort of run a due diligence process on on, on potentially acquiring or, or merging with Standard Chartered. Um, looks like they've backed away, but there's still a fair bit of chatter in the financial media that once the six month walk away period ends, they're they're going to be back to the table. What's your hot take, Julian? Do you think this is um, Likely, are your contacts in in Abu Dhabi uh, talking much? Oh, my contact in Abu Dhabi is mainly Michael Fay, who lived <laughs> in Abu Dhabi uh, at one point. Um, the 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 problem I see with that is a they click back in six months, they're going to have to pay quite a lot more for the company than they did uh, at the beginning of that process because the the share price is going up. But on the other hand, uh, it's clear that the the business has got some value left in it. Uh, I mean, a lot of people were speculating whether the truck would charter would just simply vanish or be broken up you know that somebody would take the wealth management and you know the, 
somebody else would cherry pick the banking. But I think that the lesson of this year is that there is actually a there is actually a business model there that that can weather um, different fun you know different conditions in the market. Whereas you know Barclays doesn't seem to be able to do that. So I mean that's an interesting that's an interesting it could be an interesting acquisition for someone I think who wants that that footprint but also needs uh, you know a business model which is a bit more diversified and resilient. Yeah. Okay, just to round out the uh, the our banks chat, tomorrow we've got NatWest results. So I'm I'm conscious that listeners might be armed with more information by the time they they hear this conversation than we are currently. Um, but Julian, can you sketch out what's been happening with the the lender formerly known as RBS to us and what investors might be uh, expecting this year? Yes, NatWest. So um, so no, I think it's formally yeah. No, it's now formally NatWest, isn't it? I don't think RBS exists anymore except in Scotland. Um, so the results, as you say, are coming out on Friday this week. Uh, everyone's looking to see whether the costs are going to rise for them next week, next year. Um, NatWest has been quite ruthless, or you know, quite um, quite heavy on the cost cutting over the last five years. They've managed to cut out about a quarter of their uh, fixed costs, mainly from closing branches in various parts of the country. Uh, if you live down here where I do, you know, the nearest NatWest branch is now 20 miles away. Um, and the, you know, the question is whether they can keep doing that now um, or they will just see a, uh, you know, a, they'll just be able to plateau on that. And all of their income increases now are going to come from the margin they earn on, you know, deposits and loans, um, which I think is probably more likely. Now, I don't think there's much... Uh, fat left to cut in NetWest. So it's been quite a, uh, yeah, it's been a well-run business, I would say, the last couple of years. I mean, the the, the CEO is, has done a, a reasonable job, uh, and they're the most geared to higher interest rates of all the UK banks. So they should be doing really well, and and I think we'll see that in the results tomorrow. But the out the, the outlook for 2023 is what's key, and. Uh, whether that margin is going to sort of plateau a bit because they they can't find enough more any enough costs to cut i think that might be the, the where they get marked down um but yes i mean uh, you know they're also doing things like buying up fintechs um yeah a few days ago they did another uh, sort of 125 million acquisition of a fintech so it's an interesting to see where they're going to head with that side of the business whether that becomes a strategy point to uh, to look for as well yeah so I mean, a decent shake-up and favourable trade winds uh, mean that reportedly Dame Alison Rose, the CEO, is, is expected to get a bonus of up to uh, a million pounds, which is the first time a bonus has been handed to a, a NatWest or formerly RBS CEO, CEO since the 2008 bailout. She, I mean, she's also recently been in the hot seat a little bit about um, interest rates and the degree to which NatWest are passing uh, higher rates onto uh to savers and deposit um depositors i mean, I, ch I checked their main flexible saver account today and it's it's something like 0.65 percent up to twenty five thousand, and then 1.5 percent thereafter so i mean it's certainly not market leading when it comes to flexible saver accounts uh, though they're i mean their fixed term products are a little more competitive are they uh, uh, do you think junior they're sort of resting a little too easily on these laurels or is it just a feature of high street banks that they they don't need to get into this, uh, you know, this sort of dogfight on on the higher savings rates because people, you know, a, a lot of their depositors 
aren't necessarily thinking about um, savings rates. It's it's just one of the go-to accounts to put your... To, to yeah, your I, mean, I think most of their depositors will be thinking about paying the gas bill, uh, which, which might sort of militate against that. But uh, the, I think what the, the trend you'll see, I think, is, and Barclays and Standard Chartered reported it this week, is that they're seeing deposit churn. So, I mean, it's not huge, but it's it's a good sort of four or five percentage points of the total book uh, is people basically pulling funds and looking for better rates. And it might be a, a trend that NatWest uh, needs to watch out for, because if people just decide that, well, if we're not getting the rate we want, we'll just go and find someone else to give us a better rate. Um, that could prove to be a problem. So I, they, I don't think they can afford to be too complacent about it. Um, because it's a it's a competitive market up there, and as as we know, there are lots of other you know capital hungry businesses that are prepared to offer better returns for for your for your deposit. Um, so yes, I think they'll that that'll be a, a touchstone tomorrow to see whether they're going to address any issues around um, deposit churn and whether um, they they might improve their their savings rates. I mean, it's also for them, of course, it's a, it's a political issue because the, the government still owns under 50% of the business. So it's, as soon as anything, as soon as anything comes up, that's just mildly controversial, they, they get criticised in the House of Parliament. Indeed. Well, I mean, speaking of um, cash, just sort of sitting in accounts, um, maybe we could sort of return to Hargreaves Lansdowne, uh, whose half years uh, were out this week as well. I mean, their their revenues on cash re- it really was a sort of standout figure. It has happened a couple of times before, but um, this period was was notable that for the the net interest earned on cash held in investment accounts. So the, these are Hargreaves customers who uh, are maybe reducing their exposure to funds and shares, but they're still leaving sizable um, chunks of cash in their accounts on the on the platform. Um, revenues from this cash. Um, uh, which, which jumped from 11 million in the in the year prior to nearly 122 million pounds um, in this this half, and that's against turnover of 350 million pounds for the period uh, and profits of nearly 200 million, implying that more than half of earnings are from this fairly cheap trick, um, in a way, Mark, uh, you, is your is your sense that they're they've sort of become overly reliant on this? weird aspect of the of, of their their customer uh, trading patterns well I, I tend to think it might just be um, a temporary function of the market itself because as we were talking in editorial me- meeting earlier on this morning is that um, trading volumes have, have dipped alarmingly from the first quarter of uh, last year and so where, where you haven't got that churn their standards their standard ways to generate uh, uh, earnings has, has been effectively taken away and i would i would think not under normal circumstances this is seen as something of like ancillary uh, income really and they, they've come under fire in the past as well for their uh, treatment of uh, uh, customer funds in this regard um, by contrast to someone like um, AJ Bell, for instance, but I, I, it it doesn't seem to me that it's it's a, a central part uh, of the business itself, even though it, the contribution is um, has been disproportionately large because of the the general softening in the in equity markets. Yeah, a, a very nice diplomatic answer. I, I think I, I mean the, the uh, these results. I suppose it should be said. 
you know, they also covered, which is kind of what the point you're getting at there, Mark, so they also covered a historically bad period for consumer and investor confidence. Um, so, you know, we could maybe conversely assume that if markets do gather some steam, that trading is, is going to pick up and, and the normalisation of retail investor activity might push profits higher. Um, it also corresponded with um, a, a period of rising interest rates as well, which is obviously beneficial in that regard. Uh, but I, th I, I do tend to think if, if I was management there, I wouldn't look upon this as centre of the business. It's part of a holding operation, I think, until those, uh, until those trading volumes pick up, hopefully yeah. towards the latter part of this year. I mean, a lot of people went into cash, didn't they? I mean, if you if you look at the at the stats, and I mean, everyone does it in the quarter that actually you should be buying stuff. So you know, it's uh, it, you know, it's just one of those weird behavioural investor things that they they kind of how Aubrey's Lansdowne has also benefited from in a kind of indirect way. But uh, I mean, the most entertaining thing about the results is how quickly. Um, Peter Hargreaves goes around and criticizes the current management. I think that's the that's the more the more salient feature yeah. of it. Really. I mean, and his I suppose his um you just to bring listeners up to speed on that point, his big criticism at the moment is is with the this kind of wealth management technology push, which he he's saying is a little bit too cost uh intensive. I mean, Hargreaves Lansdowne occupies this interesting position, doesn't it? It's sort of the leading investment platform, but also one of the more expensive ones, uh, partly because it's so well established and trusted. Um, is 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 this kind of technology push the best way to preserve this edge? You know, because I mean, they're going to lose out if they enter a price war, presumably from their current levels. Is it is that a sensible thing to do? Uh, I think. I mean, they have to try it. I think the, the problem they've got is that they've reached, as you say, such a size that uh, growth rates are difficult to imagine and. The only way that they could do that is either by cutting how cutting the cost of the business back to the bone and and substituting it with another technology that could do that, which is perhaps what we're talking about here in terms of this automated investment device. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, it's not a proven way of running the business yet. Um, uh, as someone on Twitter pointed out, if uh, if everybody just chose artificial chatbots to give you investment advice, they'd probably just recommend buying uh you know tracker funds for everything um, a bit like Cristillo used to do actually but uh it, it's a it, it's it's a business that a it's it has so much scale uh it can't grow very quickly or at least and b it needs to find a way to protect its very it's um it's very high margins and uh, you know as technology makes it easier for other people to choose different types of investors different type of uh, investments different types of platforms uh, you know, this this AI approach might be the only one that makes any sense for for Hargreaves Lander. But I mean, it's it's still I think you know very early days. I mean, not not uh, not entirely convinced. I would go to chat chat GTP to uh, ask for investment advice. Although I did ask them for a Marxist uh, restaurant review once, and uh, it just came back with a restaurant review. And the, at the end, it said, "Hail the hail the proletariat." So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was its uh, take on the Marxist restaurant review. Yeah, well, I do like the idea of a Cristillo generative AI, AI uh, chatbot as well. Um, uh, moving on to into the sort of post Cristillo uh, IC world, um, it, we we probably can't uh, finish this podcast without mentioning uh, the FTSE 100. Guys, we need to talk about it. It hit eight thousand points this week. Is this important? 
Uh, apparently, it's uh, psychologically important, but I, I remember them saying that about <laughs> when it breached the 7,000 point mark as well. And I suggest when we get to 9,000 points, it'll be much the same. I, I, this, this to me is only uh, interesting uh, in line with what I was mentioning before about the fact that we've had uh, falling uh, volumes. And as Julia mentioned, a great deal more investors just going into cash at this stage of the cycle as well. Um, but if I if I was looking at this, uh, if I was looking at this, and I didn't have uh, any idea about the le the levers uh, behind stock market performance, you you would look at it and you'd be quite bemused, really, because you, you look at the economy itself. The outlook is still fairly poor at the moment. Uh, inflation is still near a forty year high, and uh, we're all a bit poor because real wages of been, uh, been in retreat for the last year or so. But what, what I think it's interesting is that we've had a, the the index itself has increased by about six and a half percent from the, the start of this year after kind of flatlining through much of last year. Everyone knows the reasons why the market, uh, well, the UK benchmark outperformed its uh, uh, peers in the G7 is because of the, the weightings ascribed to energy mining and uh, large finance companies within the index itself. So it was no surprise that it did outperform, but the, it wasn't an extravagant performance either. It, you know, it, it ended flatlining throughout the year. So I, I think this this uptick in the early part of 2023 may be significant in that it might signal that uh, investors are anticipating that the, uh, that the Bank of England may actually cease its uh, interest rate cycle rises a bit earlier than expected and might even pivot towards decreases by the end of the year. I mean, that's purely speculation at the moment, but certainly if you'd have asked someone five or six months ago, they, they'd have probably, um, they'd have probably been a bit skeptical about that viewpoint, but things don't seem quite as grim as they once did. So in this morning's email, I characterize it as that uh, what it could just represent is the end of the beginning. Yeah, I suppose the other point to other feature of the FTSE 100 uh, to mention is is that something like four fifths of its revenues come from outside the UK. So it's not so much reflective of, of the UK economy more more really, you know, the kind of sterling weakness against other major currencies. Well, yes, I mean, it's a disgraceful legacy of our colonial past, isn't it? Let's face it. Another one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All these companies earning their money abroad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, look, I, I agree with Mark on that point. I mean, the volume, the, the point to make, actually, it's just a technical point on trading, is that the volumes have been so low in terms of pushing the index higher. You do wonder about the strength of that rally. Um, there was a similar situation back in 2010. Uh, and then we had a subsequent fall that was quite painful. Um, I, I don't know. I, it, it, it's it's a very traditionalist uh, composition of companies. They don't earn their money, particularly in the UK. And uh, as the government keeps complaining, they don't have any tech on it. Uh, so, you know, take your you know you take your choice on this. But you know, if you've got a, an index tracker that's tracking the FTSE 100, you've you've done pretty well out of it, really, for the last 18 months. Yeah, I think with dollar strength as well, that's going to boost um, your total return uh, in, in the FTSE as well. 
and uh, the dollar remains very strong at this point. The point you made, Julian, is germane as well, because the less participants you have in any market, the less price discovery you have. So, you know, perhaps we should uh, perhaps we should take these recent rises. In fact, the, the fact that it was sustained through last year with a pinch of, pinch of salt, really. Yeah. Just uh, on the point on performance, I mean, you know, the other thing that uh, a new record all-time high for the FTSE 100 just seemed to bring about is lots of commentary talking about how Oh, you know, it's only up 15% this century, but um, uh, compared to something like 218% from the S&P 500, this neglects, of course, the fact that if you factor in dividends, FTSE 100 is is up almost 200% on a total turn basis, yeah. which is, yeah. you know, which is 5% a year uh, compounding. It's not amazing. It's not horrible. Um, uh, but you know, given we've had the the financial crisis in that in that time, the commodities crash and the pandemic, it, you know, it could maybe be worse. Maybe the bigger question is is which en- equity index seems like a smarter bet for the next twenty three years, um, the the resource rich FTSE one hundred or the you know as as mentioned the tech heavy S and P thoughts. A blended approach. That's what we'd normally say. Chatbot um Mark Robinson springs into action. Yeah. Hail the proletariat. <laughs> um I mean that's an impossible question to I mean to answer Alex in fairness, because you can't you know, the tech boom in the States could easily shift to another market, couldn't it? So yeah, you, you know, whether that whether what we're seeing now is just pricing in future maturity is uh is a moot point isn't it you could just say that uh, all these companies that have done really well and have propelled the, that index to new heights um you know in, in 10 years 15 years time they're all going to be as boring as uh, i don't know a big insurer or something like that well, so, the, the, the point is as well it was, it was a relatively small number of companies as well that was driving uh that growth in the tech sector in the states so um you know, I, I just say, I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot of companies that will fall by the wayside, lots of technologies that will fall by the wayside and be superseded. Um, we really haven't answered or even addressed this question, I don't think. I suppose I suppose the root of it is, you know, the the association with the US economy and US stock market with higher levels of innovation, risk taking, etc. versus the uh, I, I suppose, you know, we've maybe unfairly and fairly characterized it as old old world economy of the FTSE 100 given that it's still you know a very active part of the primary economy and that that matters as we're going to touch on in our last feature but um yeah I mean it's it's probably also an unfair question so you don't have to answer it I didn't (laughs) brilliant okay let's move on then uh so finally uh we also need to talk about Glencore uh not least because to circle back to a previous talking point uh I believe uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne recently said it was the most heavily uh, traded stock on its platform recently, supplanting the ever magnetic Lloyd's um, banking group. They had numbers out this week um, too. Profits hit a record mark. Um, what what were the big drivers of, um, of 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 this landmark year? King Cole, by all accounts, that was it, and and their trading activities as well. Uh, I covered an update in uh, probably about two or three weeks ago now. And um, at that stage, we, we didn't know, you know, how they'd fared through those, uh, through their trading activities. 
but given the the level of volatility that we've had in commodity prices uh, over the last 12, 18 months, um, it was always likely to be positive as well. Uh, thermal coal, uh, well, actually, uh, coal prices have, have been favourable, or they've softened just a little bit recently. Um, you know, they, they've, they have dropped recently due to the mild European winter, but uh, I also learned that the first shipments uh, uh, coming out of Australia going to China have just started as well, which would be generally uh, favourable for, for prices in that market going forward. Uh, it, it just shows, though, that we, we it doesn't pay to make too many uh, assumptions in the commodities complex because, again, if you'd have asked people a few years ago the outlook for coal prices in 2023, and it would be far more down, downcast than uh, uh, the re reality suggests. Yeah. I, I, I mean, just, just to stay with, with the coal point, I suppose that there's a lot of investors out there and I imagine a lot of listeners for whom the prospect of investing in one of the world's largest coal miners doesn't sit right given, you know, growing concerns about the climate crisis. Um, I mean, Glencore says, they said this week that their climate action transition plan has broadly been supported. And they, I mean, they refer to stakeholders rather than shareholders, implying, you know, that they're thinking also about customers and producer countries which we can't rule out of the the equation here it's not just about uh, shareholder purity I, I suppose um what's your what's your general take on on what they've you know they're called their responsible coal depletion strategy is it is it the wise one looking back at the last few years of of uh, of divestments by peers and and sort of bets against coal which have have not really been proven as you mentioned well, part of the reason for that as well is because so many uh, mining companies uh, have failed to put in the, the requisite investment. So uh, a little bit similar to crude oil in that regard, uh, you're going to get a sticking point in, in the market when uh, demand increases and there's no new supply coming on as well. Um, I, guess, I guess one thing that they were, they're looking at as well um, or at least all the steel makers are looking at as well, a, a way to transition away from coal. But I'm not even quite sure the science of that. Well, is this called green green steel? Is that is that the term? I, I believe it might be, yeah. Uh, getting there probably requires some technologies which aren't fully realised, is my yeah. understanding. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you, you've seen this year as well that Germany has um, had to refire coal plants. We, we have here from time to time. Um, repurpose or repurpose their old uh, their old input material. So I don't know. I'm I'm always a, I'm a, I'm always a little bit cynical about the way that we're going, in um, in in picking out arbitrary targets for for carbon uh, reductions. I think uh, it, I think we should be pay a little bit more attention to uh, the market itself because. Um, it could be extremely de destabilizing in terms of prices as we go forward. We're, we're definitely going to see this with crude oil. Uh, if you know, we, you could argue that that we're seeing it already. Uh, if you if you take if you suddenly take if suddenly you take uh, a supply out of a market or the incentive to replace supply, then you're going to be in problem uh, in problems because um, demand because of uh, the um, uh, the, the growth of sort of middle classes in the emerging market economies, that's still going on. There doesn't seem to be any uh, halt there in terms of demand. 
so I'm, I'm as Julia, if I might to paraphrase Julia from early on, I'm a sort of disgraceful relic from our colonial era. So I'm, I, I, I just think that that we need to have a little bit more joined up thinking on this transition. Yeah, and in the process, you did answer my question earlier. So it's going to be the FTSE 100, which will ride higher uh, over the, the S&P uh, over the next 23 years. So um, there you go. Yeah. Lovely. Okay, let's let's um, wrap things up there, shall we? Um, uh, so this week's cover story, written by Val Cipriani, asks, "Is buy to let investing worth it anymore?" Uh, and that's available in all good news agents uh, and, of course, online at investorschronicle.co.uk. Thanks to Mark, Julian, uh, and to John uh, for your uh, help today, and to all of you for listening. Thank you. Mm-hmm.